they trigger so many emotions. And I still write diaries. That day, that was Saturday. I remember I was sitting here in my sofa. I wrote a long piece of diary, right? I was crying and I was writing. And I sent them also, my parents, my sister, a, a short note. And I said, if I could start over my life, please still let me be your daughter. I will make a different choice in life. That's Dr. Jia Wong, professor and researcher of human resource development at Texas A&M University at College Station. I'm Marie-Lane Germain, and this is another episode of the special series, It's Personal. The goal of It's Personal is to get to know the HR person behind the books, the research articles, and the lectern. Welcome, Jia. Thank you so much for having me. So besides being a professor and researcher, you are the mother of a 21-year-old musician, Derek mm-hmm. Song, who's recently graduated from Berkeley College of Music in Boston. You're also the wife of, I quote, the best, <laughs> the best carrier-based jet tactical pilot. And so you were born and raised in China which you left at age 21, and you've built your life outside China, guided by your mantra, which is to follow your heart. You have lived in Uganda, in Nigeria, and also in England, and you described yourself as a risk taker, a daydreamer, a cultural ambassador, and a people lover. So I want to start with where you grew up, John. I grew up in China the capital city of Panda Bears. <laughs> I've always said Kendu is where I grew up with. It's a city of Panda Bear. We're known for silk. But more, my identity is really associated myself with Air Force family. My dad was in the Air Force, well, Air Force officer for more than three decades. So I grew up on the Air Force base, right? Every day you listen to the Air Force music. We're very structured. And my mom was in HR. She started with the organization with the government, then transitioned into high-tech zone, economic zone in the corporation environment. So since I was three, my sister and I, we were in a daycare from Monday to Saturday. So we only came home on Sunday. So since three, as far as I remember, three to six years old, I went to elementary. So the only day you got to see mom and dad was that one day, right? So it was a precious time for my elementary school life. I was at home with mom and dad was traveling uh, most of the time. You know, in China, when you're in the service, you went by yourself, right? Your family didn't go with you. There were 10 years period of time where my mom and dad lived separate lives. So that was a lot of sacrifice for our family, also for my dad as well. So since I was 10, I started my, we call the secondary school. I was again, once again, with my sister, we were sent to the boarding school. So I was living in the boarding school until I graduated from college when I was 20. So it was very interesting. I had a very close relationship with my mom, but most of my memories in school, schooling was really in the school, right? So I was looking forward to this one day coming home and follow my mom everywhere. Then I cry my tears and I went back to school. That was uh, over 10 years of my life like that. And so you have one sister? I have one sister, yeah, who's one year older than me. Does she live in China? 
she lives in China. Uh, she was in the Air Force. Uh, Lei Zhang, she joined Air Force. She was a doctor in the Air Force. And she left uh, over 10 years. She retired from the Air Force. She became a manager in a life insurance company. And she lives in China right now. And do you still have your parents? Yes, I have both my parents. My dad actually just celebrated his 80s birthday over the weekend. That was a big tear-jerking <laughs> moment for me, right? Watching the video to see why am I not there, right? I've missed all the important uh, celebrations yeah, with my parents. They're both very healthy, have very, very active social life. Do you wish you could spend more time with them? Is that one regret you have? Oh, absolutely. You know, on that day when I watched the video, I didn't think my dad intended to send a video just to make me feel guilty, right? But I, <laughs> it, but it triggered so many emotions. And I still write diaries. That day, that was Saturday. I remember I was sitting here in my sofa. I wrote a long piece of diary, right? I was crying and I was writing. And I sent them also, my parents, my sister, a, a short notes. We use WeChat, right? The a social media, the platform. And I said, if I could start over my life, Please still let me be your daughter. I will make a different choice in life. At least my choice will be closer to you so I can spend more time right, with you. Yeah, so that really hurt me. You know, I didn't expect when I was watching the video, that's how I felt. And my sister actually called me last night. We had over two hours conversation. She called me. She basically said, Ja, I don't want you to feel guilty, right? I, I read your note. I was upset because we didn't mean to send you the video, but that share, like, it's really sharing the happy part, right? So she said, we all have different life. And just because you're not physically here, doesn't mean you're not a good daughter. I think that guilt of not being a good daughter has become stronger and stronger as I become older. <laughs> Is your dad mad? Is he upset at you for having left China? Not at all. Actually, uh, I think he, for my dad, he would want me to be home right, in China. And, and nobody actually imagined I would be the one who's leaving home because I was very dependent on my mother. I was very close to my mom. And my sister left home when uh, she joined the army. <clears throat> so she would join the Air Force. So she was more independent. We have very different personalities. She was more reserved. I was very open. So I was just, everybody can see me within the first 30 minutes, they know my life story. So I was super, super close to my mom. And so my mom was actually the one who encouraged me to. I had a lot of dreams and funny, you know, you would be laughing at me. We always knew when I was very young, I didn't fit into my Chinese culture, <laughs> believe it or not. That's how my parents feel, right? You would be much better off if you live in a Western country. So when I decided to pursue a life outside of China, my, my mom encouraged me. My dad still jokes nowadays, say, hey, your mom loves you so much and she spoiled you by letting you do whatever you wanted to do, right? <laughs> I know deep inside my dad would love to have me by his side. Yeah, but they've always been very supportive, very encouraging. That's very empowering for sure. Do you have a favorite childhood memory? Oh my gosh, I have so many. <laughs> so I don't think I can just name one, but I, I can see myself right now you know just talking to you the kind of child I was I was a tongue boy believe it or not I was super active so every afternoon I was downstairs you know we came home you didn't go back home I laid out all my homework right right there on the desk and then I went downstairs I play with ants every single day 
I trained grasshoppers. <laughs> Can you imagine? I trained grasshoppers. I was a nature kid. Wait, wait, wait. You trained <laughs> grasshoppers? I trained grasshoppers. Can you imagine? I love to summertime. I caught grasshoppers. Normally, I just only do one. The big one, green, very pretty one. So I took the grasshopper home. So put on my desk. Then I would train and I draw a line using a uh, using a pen on my desk, right? So I would draw, so okay, start from here, run 100 meter dash. So I was training him from one end to another and every day, <laughs> very diligently. And I had a box, I made a, a bed for my grasshopper in, a, in an evening. I mean, it sounds very cool. I have a very thin line and put around his body so he doesn't go away, but it's a very long one, right? So I put my grasshopper in box and covered my grasshopper. So that was my favorite activity <laughs> growing up. But of course, you can imagine my grasshopper didn't last many days, right? But I, yeah, that I was just a nature person. I play with all kinds of animals I could reach. Yeah. And I hear the military horn, you know, that means dad is coming home. I would dash back to my room and just pretending I'm, I've been working for a long time, right? So my dad would come home first thing and looking at me, say, you've been studying? I say, yes, dad. They say, you cannot be. I'm saying, I have been because... Guess what? I was so active. So my, my hair was always steaming because of the, <laughs> the sweat. My dad said, it cannot be. Look at your hair. I see steams coming out of your hair, right? So that's how I remember my childhood, always outdoors, trying to find ways to, just to be adventurous. I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you another question about that grasshopper. Are they trainable? Okay. <laughs> sorry. Are they trainable? Uh, not really, but I believe I made an impact. <laughs> How's that? I believe when my grasshopper was hopping uh, in a straight line, I gave myself credit. <laughs> wow, but fascinating. I never gave up, right? But I never gave up. If one of my grasshoppers passed away, I had a little ritual, bury my uh, grasshopper, and then I went downstairs to get another one. So I, it was just interesting. I never gave up. I just somehow believe. If I persist, my grasshopper one day will be able to understand my instruction. <laughs> and how old were you when you did that? I was probably seven, eight, nine. I mean, I was very active in my elementary school. How do you think your experience living in China has shaped the person you've become? I don't think I can separate the Chinese job from who I am right now. I don't know if I'm American job or if I'm a Chinese job, right? I think... As I get older, I realize some of the cultural values I used to cherish less become even more important. Right? For example, in my 20s, I've always believed I follow my heart. If I have the motivation, the desire to travel, to be away from home, I'm going to leave. Right. So, But as I'm approaching older years, I realize, you know what, I wish I could spend more time with mom and dad. I wish I could spend more time with my sister and my sister now has a son. I wish I could be there, just be the perfect auntie, right? So I think part of me, that the Chinese me is always there. It depends on the environment and the context. It may come out stronger or it, it may disappear, being buried for a little while. Another side of me is longing for the freedom, chasing whatever dream I had. So that's why when I... After I watched the video, um, my dad's birthday video, I wrote that passage to them, say, forgive your daughter for living a very self-centered life, right? Because in China, you have expectation, even though today it's different, but still, and 
people like to have their big family around, right? In the holiday time, they like to have a big family getting together. And you, as a daughter, you still have that kind of responsibility of taking care of your older parents, right? Being very near, being available whenever they need you. So I think those things are always in me. Just depends on when I come out more prominently than not. You mentioned China, the Chinese draw. Tell us about your experiences living abroad and not in China and not in the U.S., but specifically in Nigeria, Uganda, and also England. Why were you there? What did you do there? And what did you learn from your experiences there? My very first job was working with an international contractor uh, with a very famous company in our province. But they have been well established in Uganda for over 25 years, right? So they build different projects like housing, a road construction, a dam. So when I graduated, actually, as a matter of fact, before I graduated from college, I knew I would be sent to Uganda, you know, as part of my job, because everybody has to be in different country in Uganda. I think that was a huge appeal to me because I was very adventurous. And in my high school, I was deeply influenced by a book. The author was from Taiwan. Her name is her uh, nickname is San Mao. She's a very famous uh, Taiwanese writer, right? But she lived in Africa, Sahara Desert for many years. And she married a husband who was from Spain, right? So her life herself is like a fairy tale, right? It's, it's so unreal. So I was so deeply influenced by her. Even when I was in college, I always dreamed I'm going to be in Sahara Desert. I'm going to be in Africa. I'm going to explore places nobody wanted to go. You know, at that time, everybody wanted to come to U.S., Canada, you know, U.K., those developed countries. So when I knew I had an opportunity to go to Africa, I was very excited. And I was telling myself, well, hey, this is a dream come true. How many people get to go to Africa? So that was the uh, one of the drives. So when I went to Africa, it was a four-year project sponsored by the World Bank. It's building a dam in a place called Jinja. It's the second largest city of Uganda. And I was sent there as the, one of the first six people that right, we call Pioneer Group. So there were two women. I was the youngest, 20, 21. I decided to go to work when I on my birthday, 21. So I graduated before I turned 21. Then after three months of training within China, right, within a company, we were sent. So another girl was 26 years old. She was a civil engineer. She was the expert in doing housing construction, right? Another four men are civil engineers. They're all technical. They're engineers, right? I was the only one who's not engineer, more on language management that side. And I was very excited. I was very excited because everything was so new. It's like I'm living a fairy tale, right? So I think for the first few months, I was writing a lot of letters to my parents. Each letter was like an essay. <laughs> I was describing my feelings, the country. I still remember the moment we landed in uh, airport Kampala. We were picked up by the bus from the company. And on the way to Dinda, there was one hour, at least one hour of drive. I saw so many people waving, Uganda people, women, men, they're waving through the window, saying, hi, Sietko. That's our company's name, right? The abbreviation, Sietko. Hi, Sietko. I was so shocked at how warm, how friendly they were. I'm thinking, wow, this is how well-respected. You feel like you are different uh, class, right? Living in China, we're all Chinese. Suddenly, you came to Africa. Mm -hmm. You feel like, wow, people treated you better, 
like you have more status, more prestigious status. That's something very new to me. And people were so warm and nice to you. That's something very new to me. I remember every day in my, I was working in my office where our dormitories were, was on, on the compound, right? So I'll be sitting in front of my uh, table and there will always be Uganda boys, like seven or eight, that kind of age, come to my, to my window. We have the iron bars. I still remember it. So they will be holding on to the bars and say, Madame, what are you doing? And, and at that time, you know, we have a lot of little gifts or the snacks from China from mom. I will share with them. I remember they were, you can see their eyes just light up. I'm thinking, wow, they've never seen, you know, snacks, right? The little things. So I shared with them every day. And that's the time, you know, at the tender age of 21, for the first time I realized how, what a privileged life I've lived, right? I think it's all about perspective. And I think those two years are so significant to me because they really helped me to see who am I, you know, how privileged I am, how can I contribute, give back to people who have less privilege than me. So I would say Uganda was very influential. And also I was put in a situation where I was doing things I wasn't prepared, right? Just because I was a literature major, uh, I was a translator, right? Doesn't mean I understand anything about technical building a house, building a rose, building a dam. I was so struggled, so struggled. Even I remember I was checking dictionary one. What does this word mean? Oh, this word is nipple. Cannot be nipple, right? What does nipple mean in a technical sense? Immediately I was put in a situation. I had to be the mouthpiece of my project manager, the liaison between Uganda Electricity Board and the Canadian consultant. And I had to translate all the technical letters, right? And the communications. I remember how many nights I was crying, crying. I went to my project manager and said, yeah, I can't do this. But, and he grabbed my hand and said, yeah, you can. I'm thinking, I can't, you can't. That's what, he doesn't speak English, right? Mm -hmm. So I realized, oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared, but here's a leader who rely on you for translating whether I'm accurate or not accurate. He didn't know. He would assume I'm, I'm accurate. I think those are tons of pressure for somebody at 21 years old. And I survived. <laughs> I think after you've done uh, so many letters, you start to pick up those languages, technical jargons. You understand you become better and better. And you survive. I think I was very proud. And that was the first time I see, oh, Jia, you actually can survive in a difficult situation. Even you feel like you're not prepared, you still find a way to survive. How long did you stay in Uganda? For two years. And I went back uh, after I quit my job. I went back and just to work with a private organization. So that's another experience. Yeah. And so that's east of Africa, of uh, the continent of Africa. Now you uh, also went to Nigeria, which is on the west of Africa. True. So how did you end up in Nigeria and how long did you stay there and what did you do there? Okay, so when I was in Nigeria, it was really by accident. Actually, at that time, I was in the uh, UK. I was in Aston Business School <clears throat> studying my MBA. So for my uh, research project, for my graduation thesis, right, we have to engage in the project. And when I was working in, uh, in Africa, in Uganda, I made some friends, friendship with people from International Red Cross. So one of them became my friend, and he happened to be hired by this Nigeria company to do the reorganization project. So he reached out to me and said, hey, Zhao, you want to come over here to do a project? I'm thinking, absolutely. <laughs> That's going to be my master's thesis, right? So I went to Nigeria uh, 
to work on this international consulting project. I stayed there for uh, almost four months. And supposedly, you know, the original plan is I'm going to design the training uh, intervention and the plan and also use that plan with the workers, the truck drivers. It was a transportation company. But it didn't work out because the manager was fired by the owner, right? So I was unexpected. But I still, I was able to use the data to produce my master thesis. So those are four months of a different experience. After I was in Eastern Africa for over two years and a half, right? Because I went back there by myself, Africa. But this time I went back to Western part of Africa because of my project, my personal connection. So it's very interesting experience. That experience taught me something different about culture and management, right? So Mm. yeah, it was another significant experience in my career life. Have you been back since your 20s? No, <laughs> I haven't had a chance. Yeah, I would love to, but I haven't had a chance. But I've done a lot of crazy things, right? And in my 20s, I traveled a lot in Kenya. I did a lot of crazy things. You know, the horse riding in Nigeria every day and along the beach, lots of safari in, uh, in Kenya. You know, those are the things I read in the novels, right, when I was a child. So it's like, wow. Those wild dreams do come true. <laughs> so I think I lived a very good life. In, in retrospect, I wish I could start over mm -hmm. and live it again. Yeah. So you feel you're not as adventurous now? I think I'm still adventurous in, in my heart, but I've become more practical since I've become a mother. I think that has a huge impact in my life, the decisions I made. I had my son right when I was doing my doctoral degree, so... I was later in the later. So when I become a mother, I was 29, right? So I was still following my heart at that time. But when I, before I graduated, I realized, you know what? I'm a mother. I can't just be doing things on impulse. My dad always joke about me. He said, John, you follow your heart too much, right? Because I was very, I make decisions based on my emotions and my feelings, right? Because uh, there's no consequence. It's just me. If I didn't like this job, I quit. But now, If I don't have a job, how do I provide a life for my son? If I don't like the job, can I just quit my job? If I just pack my bag, can I just leave, right? I, there are so many practical uh, elements. I couldn't just be the 20 years old me the way I did before. Yeah, so I think in my heart, I still want to travel, but I become more practical and when and how, right? And I make choices. And, and my son, Derek, has always become my a priority in every decision-making I have to do. So earlier you talked about the Chinese jaw and the American jaw. In what ways are the two jaws different? That's a great question, right? I think the Chinese jaw more applies to my personal domain, in my personal life. For example, in China, in China <clears throat> your parents are never wrong, right? You, mm -hmm. you grow up, you learn, your parents never wrong. You never expect them to say sorry to you, right? Your parents criticize you. And also in our culture, it's a very different education approach, right? Our approach is more negative reinforcement compared to America. It's more positive, right? I grew up always learned I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty. My mom always said, you're not pretty, but you have a great personality. You're not smart, but you can work harder. I've always, so when first time when I, I went to Africa, People say, oh, you look pretty. I'm thinking, why do you insult me like that, right? Why did you do this to me? When people say, oh, you're a smart lady, 
And I'm thinking, why do you do this to me? Because it was ingrained in my brain. I'm not pretty. I'm not smart. But you know what? I have great personality. I have willpower so I can work harder. Right. So I've always, that's my mentality. It's very hard. I think that part of education and upbringing make me not have confidence for many, many years. I think it's something I'm still working on. I still suffer from imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> Every time I see somebody accomplish something, media say, oh, yeah, what have you come? Oh, my gosh, you're not working hard enough. You haven't produced enough. You haven't accomplished enough, right? So it's, it still bothers me, aside of being a negative reinforced, right? That's It's in my DNA. And I never just say, you're good. I remember uh, one of the aha moments when I was in a doctoral student at University of Georgia. You know how China, we are always very humble, right? And the modesty is very important. Yes, so every yes. time when people give you compliment, you can't just say, oh, thank you. You always say, oh, no, 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 I'm not good enough, right? I remember even those days people say, oh, Jia, you look very nice. I love your dresses. Oh, no, this is just one of my ordinary dresses, right? You always say no. I remember one day when we had a class, we did a presentation, each one of us. I finished my presentation. So several colleagues came to me and said, oh, Jia, you did such a great job. I said, oh, no, not at all. That was the first time I caught myself. I've been doing that for years, right? But I caught myself saying, you know, Jia, did you really do that poorly? You spent a lot of time preparing for this presentation. You practiced. So why did you just put yourself down, right? And that, well, that was the first time I thought about that. I mean, you know what? If As a Chinese, I can't just brag about myself. But it, instead of bragging, can I just say, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being very nice, right? Can I just acknowledge people's kind words? That was the first time I just had that paradigm shift in the hallway, walking in the in my academic building. I said, you know what? From now on, I'm not going to put myself down. If I did put authentic effort, I'm just, thank you so much so is that the American jaw? It's just a small piece of American jaw, right? And then bigger piece, you know, coming from a culture, we don't confront, right? We don't deal with conflicts, right? We always choose to uh, not to engage. And people can say, you are so great in front of you, but behind you, you're really just the most terrible person. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> going to say that to your face. You don't right. challenge authority, right? right. And I, that was always my problem. That was always my problem, even because I've always told myself, because I stay so true to who I am, <laughs> who I was, if I don't like somebody, if I don't like something, I can't pretend I still like you, right? I think that's something I need to learn. I'm still learning. So I can't just show I'm, oh, I like you. I can't say, oh, you're the great performer. You didn't, right? So that's something my mom always say. My sister still jokes nowadays. She said, if you know if you work in my company, you would have been fired by my boss 10 times. <laughs> I said, that's why I'm not there because I'm so straightforward, right? I don't filter my words. I don't sugarcoat. That's a big taboo in China. You can't, you can't worry. You have to worry about people losing face. I don't hurt people public. I don't ever intend to do that. But I'm very honest. That doesn't really work very well, right? It's, for example, when it comes to performance review, nobody ever is going to say you're not a good performer, right? Everybody says, oh, I like you. And in relationship, is so important. You build your relationship. Relationship will give you job promotion, salary increase. But I couldn't do that. I couldn't do a relationship just because I need those things. I was hoping if you can see me as a good performer, you recognize that. But a lot of times it doesn't work that way, right? I think not only in China, in many societies where relationship is a foundation, it doesn't work that way. 
I realized that early on. And here, I think it's interestingly, when people see me in America, they have their stereotype thinking about you, right? Oh, you're a Chinese, so we expect you to be very obedient, or we expect you to be very quiet, right? You don't speak much. And when they find out I'm not that way, so there is a conflict. And say, mm, what is happening to this Chinese woman? <laughs> she speaks up. She's not afraid of engaging in difficult conversations. So there's a gap between what they see me and what I actually present myself. And I realize I feel free in America because I could be true. I could say, this is not how I imagine. So can I respectfully challenge you? In China, you can't. Whether how respectful, you just don't challenge authority. You don't challenge senior period, right? I still have a hard time even nowadays challenge my mom and dad. I can't even tell them, mom, you know, all this negative reinforcement you gave me didn't help me. I can't, I can't do that to my parents. I think that's the Chinese side of job, but I can very comfortably do that to my American colleagues, anybody who is not Chinese. I can say anything difficult to them without feeling difficulty, but I cannot do that to my parents, my family, my sister, I just can't. It sounds like America in a way was really helpful for you to become the person you always wanted to become. I mean, you were vocal in China, you extroverted. And so America, in a way, helped you become who you wanted to become. Is that right? That's true. And also another aspect I always remember, I, growing up, I was, I loved singing, I loved dancing. My mom was my great mentor, right? So every dance and every singing, every competition, my mom spent a lot of time coaching me. So I always won. I never experienced failure until the college exam. That was my biggest failure in life at that point, right? So every competition I went to, I won a award. First, second, third, but I've always coming home with a award, right? So you realize in our culture, it's also about giving other people opportunities. My mom often told me, John, you know what? You've done this so many times. Perhaps it's time for other people to have opportunity to compete. And I'll always say, Mom, no, that's not the way it works. If I'm good enough, if I get selected, I should be there as a competitor, right? Mm -hmm. So see, that mentality doesn't work well in China. In China, we have a lot of, we work together, right? We get recognized as a team. Right. I'm, right. I'm very much, we, 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 it was funny when I was here, when I first came here, my colleagues joke about me, say, John, can you tone down your we, 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 and think more about I, I, I. So in their eyes, I'm, too much of collective thinking. But in China, I'm actually was very individualized to some degree, right? When it comes to competition, I believe fair participation. If I'm good, I should be there. And it doesn't work that way. I've learned my lessons in college, right? Even you are good, you should also give other people opportunities. And I didn't learn that. And I think to some degree, when coming to this country, allow me to be that me, <laughs> that less Chinese me, right? So you do have comparatively speaking, more opportunity to to compete, right? And to be you, not always worry about we, right? So I think that aspect is, I'm still working on that, <laughs> how to keep the balance, yeah. Now, integrity is quite important in your life. Isn't it difficult to want to do the right thing all the time? I mean, you've never had a speeding ticket? <laughs> I got two speeding tickets. <laughs> And I, it was like a end of the world. <laughs> I re yes, of course, it's very difficult, right? And it's very difficult. And a lot of times I'm torn, even by myself. I'm thinking, why do you fight so hard? 
at the end of the day, you create many, many enemies for yourself, right? Who are going to be your allies, right, in a workplace? And just because you're fighting doesn't mean you're making an impact. I've always learned that. I also learned that in a very difficult way, right? I used to, when I was younger, I believe this is not right. I'm going to fight really hard. Guess what? I realized I can't have that courage to fight, but I'm not, have, I don't have the power <laughs> to make any impact. And guess what? At the end of the day, you can be the one who is completely dismissed, right, from, from your environment. Life goes on. Nobody cares, but I become a victim, right? So I realized, and a few years ago, one of my colleagues very wisely advised me, say, John, please pick your battle. And I realized that was the time I was fighting every single battle, big or small. As long as I believe this is not right, I'm going to fight. Even if it's not my fight, I'm still fighting, right? I think over the time I've learned, you know, John, there's things not always the way you want them to be. However, I ask my question right now, can I really make an impact? Do I want to speak up? I Most of the time I do. I do speak up. When I think see things that are not right, I do speak up respectfully. But I don't bother anymore the way I used to when I don't make an impact, right? I used to be very emotional, very angry when nothing happened. And I tell myself, did you try your best? I did. Did you try to be you, adhere to your values? I did. Then the rest of that will be out of my control, right? I think I'm learning about just give my best effort and when to give the effort. I've learned in many, many, by making many mistakes to learn. If you want to make a change, you want to make an impact. You also have to be strategic, right? You can't just like a bulldozing your way. And that was me when I was in my 20s. I was like a bulldozer. I thought I was doing the right thing, but no. So it, it is hard. Uh, Marie, it's really hard. And sometimes I don't want to be the bad guy, right? I'm thinking, why should I be the bad guy? I like to have a harmonious environment. That's where I came from. I grew up in a culture where harmony, relationship, yeah are everything, right? I don't want to have many enemies. Even nowadays, my parents still advise me, John, don't create too many enemies for yourself. And I hear that, right? So it's it's a constant battle for me. How do I balance in between, you know, speaking up and not speaking up and crossing my ethical boundary and what is my ethical boundary? And I expand this boundary in this particular incident or or can I make a difference without hurting myself? That's another piece I didn't learn early on, right? You speak up, but sometimes at the expense of yourself. Are you willing to take that risk? Mm -hmm. I've always been very willing, even as a system professor now being promoted. I say, I don't care. I'm going to speak up. And I realized, you know what? <laughs> as much as you don't care, but there's consequences you may not be able to afford, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think twice and three times nowadays. So before the show, you told me that your husband is, I quote, the best carrier-based jet tactical pilot. Now, please enlighten us here. What is a oh carrier-based jet tactical pilot? You can tell that's not my language, right? <laughs> Originally, I was like, oh, he was just a Navy aviator. He said, no, 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 John, that's not an accurate description of me. You know, I have to qualify. I never share his active duty life, right? This is my second husband. I divorced. I was divorced when my son was three years old. <clears throat> so I met my current husband 
he already uh, when I met him when my son was five, he was already retired from the military, right? From his life. But you know, since then I've heard so many stories. I feel like I was living in his life <laughs> by being an outsider trying to get in. So basically, so what he did is he flew jets, right? He he made a distinction saying, well, I'm not flew, I'm flew jets and he landed on a carrier, right? Carry base, meaning you landed your a plane on the carry on the deck of a big mm-hmm. ship, right? So yes. you don't land on a regular airport. That makes him very proud, right? Because not many people can do that. And he's probably uh, has the longest non-interrupted flying time as as a jet pilot, right? So they deliver bombs, of course, right? In a wartime, so their uh, jets were equipped with the bombs, the capacity for war. Right. But mm-hmm. when there's a need for war. So he's not just a commercial pilot. He's not just a helicopter pilot. His job involves, involves high, ta- high skill, <laughs> high pressure and a lot of skills to be able to survive. Right. So I, the reason I said he was the best, not because I witnessed being the best, because over the years I've met a lot of his pilot friends, bombardier navigator friends. We just met one last Friday says uh, he still is the superb pilot, one of the best. So I've learned that over the time, I heard many comments on how good he, he was as an aviator. So that makes me very proud. Even I haven't shared that <laughs> career life with him. But that must feel comfortable, right? I mean, you chose a husband who's also in the military. So that feels like at home for you, right? That's absolutely. I think I chose him because of we are so aligned in terms of the way we look at the world. Uh, our value system, I think. Yeah. And then it's just a nice bonus. Is it? Wow. By the way, you're also a good pilot. So that's a icing on the cake, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Jai, you describe yourself as a risk taker. Can you give us some examples of risks that you've taken? Okay. I think a risk is, it, there are two different, two, there are different types of risks, right? But I, Grew up in a family where my mom was HR manager. <clears throat> so in, in our culture, here's another culture insights, right? So in our culture, nobody uh, make appointment, right? You just basically come to their home. You knock on the door. You wanted to ask this person to help you. So I grew up in an environment almost very frequently. We were ready for dinner and somebody's knocking on the door and it's for my mom. Somebody needs my mom to help the family to move from one city to another and need another job, right? So I grew up in that environment. The relationship was very important. And I grew up in an environment where people constantly complain, I don't like my job, hate my job, right? I was very young. I was not even 10 years old. I remember I asked my mom's friends, if you hate your job, why didn't you leave your job? They say, you know what? You can't. You know, in China, you think about the population, how difficult to get a job. I'm thinking, I'm jokingly saying there's no need for talent retention because we have too many people waiting for a position, right? We don't have to develop you. So my friends often say, mom's friends say, oh, because I don't know if I can get another job or if I don't know if I can get a job that give me better pay or job stability. That was the point I made a decision to myself. At that young age, I say, you know, I will never endure a job I don't like. Even that means I don't know what's my next job, where is my next meal. To me, that's a risk-taking, right? Because not many people are willing to take that risk. And I did for my very first job. It was a great company, but I witnessed some of the power dynamics when I was in Uganda. And I realized at 21, 22, 
that's not the environment I wanted to be, right? Because the values don't align. And I quit my job. You know, in China, people have a lot of influence. My CEO at home to say, you know, I want to know your daughter has a great future in our company. We want to uh, develop her. And so my, my parents were very upset about my impulse decision. <laughs> they call quitting the job, right? And I said, you know what, dad, I really think this. I can't be this in political environment. I'm not going to thrive. I'm going to quit. And I wrote my resignation letter. You guess what? My dad edited my letter for me, right? To me, that's a risk because I didn't have another job, but I didn't care. I just knew I don't want to be in this environment. I've done that uh, many times in my life, just without thinking about my what's my backup plan, right? So to me, and in retrospect, I'm thinking, is that too risky? Maybe. But am I proud of the decision I made? I, I, I do. I do feel very proud. I don't have any regrets. So I mean, that's one aspect of risky, taking a risk. Another risk is I, because my mantra of following my heart, when I still can, I always believe if you want to pursue something, do it. Don't just talk about it, right? So I have so many wild dreams. I wanted to study in England, <clears throat> not knowing I don't have anybody. I, was, I had a lonely two years, very challenging uh, MBA uh, program. But I survived, right? So going to from Africa, leaving home, I come from a very privileged family. And for the first time I came to U.S. doing a PhD, I realized, oh, my gosh, I lost all the privilege. My grandparents are very high-ranking, have very high-ranking social status. My parents are very successful professionals. So I grew up, always have a little bit more privilege. When I came to the U.S., I realized I have to start over. Nobody can help me. I can't use any networks because I don't have any, anyone. To me, that's risky. I can easily go back to China. I can choose to go back to China. My mom, with her position, will find me a very good job. But I made a decision early on. I want to be successful in my own way. I don't want to be successful. People can say that's because of your mom, right? I think I made a decision to be away from mom, away from her influence. To me, all those are risk-taking, right? I could live a very comfortable life in China, but I chose not to because I have my own dream and my own desire to establish myself in my own way. But I think in every decision I make, I tell myself, you know what? The most important thing is just to try, right? The results is not important. If you focus on the process, give your best, then let the result just take its own course. To me, those are risk-taking decisions in life. And I'm really proud of myself for being able to <laughs> challenge myself constantly. Is there an article or a conference paper yeah. that you published that has a particular significance to you personally? Well, that's a great question. I don't think there's a single one. I think many of them serve different purposes, depends on my career stage, right? But I do think about the edited issue uh, between Holly Hutchins, you know, we are like sisters, Holly Hutchins, Dr. Holly Hutchins, and me, we did an issue for HR for advances in human resources, developing human resources for crisis management. I was particularly proud because that's something I didn't think about. And, and I think it was influential, helped me realize what do I really want to do through research is to make practical impact. At that time, I, I started my career at, in Barry University, Florida. <clears throat> we Three days into the new position, new location, we had a major hurricane, right? So my job didn't really start until two months later. And we didn't have printers. I didn't have my office set up. A lot of interruptions. 
then I met Holly Hutchins in the Academy's conference. And at that time, Houston also went through a major hurricane. So she called me one day. She said, hey, John, do you want to do a study on crisis management? I'm thinking, crisis management? At that point, my research was only on management development, right? Because that was my work, my passion. She said, yeah, look at what your job has how do you how do you take care of your students during a natural disaster? And I'm experiencing the same thing. So that was the first time I realized the reason I'm doing research is also to solve some real issues, right? So I, I was very particularly proud of that issue because it was something I wasn't prepared to do, but it has also started a, a different journey, helped me see research in a very different way. And there are also others research I was very proud of, like my first one with my doctoral student in Barrie, we did a workplace incivility. Again, it was by accident, right? And But it became one of my research passions nowadays. So I'm going to shift gears uh, a little bit here. Your, your son, Derek, is 21 years old, and mm-hmm. he's a musician. Yes. Where do you think his love for music comes from? I love music. Right? I was growing up being a dancer and singer, and Derek's biological father was a phenomenal singer and dancer. So we always knew our child, whether it's a daughter or son, will be a very artistic music baby. My mother is very good drawer, right? So we are a very artistic family that way. My mom was very artistic. So we've always known Derek will be, our child will be very artistic and very musical, but I just never imagined he would take classic mu- music, like classic violin, so seriously. <laughs> That's something I didn't imagine. When he was one or two, you could tell. On his first birthday, as long as music was on, Derek was moving with music, never missed the beat, right? That was just, music was so natural uh, for Derek. It was just part of him, who he was. He was a dancer when he was one or two. He self-taught by watching TV programs. He memorized every single word, every move. It was quite amazing. Even when he was one and a half years old, he went to the park with my grandma every evening. You know, in China, you have a lot of uh, groups in in a park, right? Doing Tai Chi or dancing. He learned a fan dance at the age of one, one year and a half. The fan was longer than his arm, but he memorized the the four minutes dancing and he could self-talk, completely self-talk, become a star in that (laughs) senior group, right? Because he was there every day. So you, I just knew Music has to be part of his life. And his computer, if you look at early on, his computer homepage is music is my life. That's everything he thought about. (laughs) Do you play a musical instrument? You know what? Sadly, I don't. (laughs) I learned learned piano. My gift for myself after I got promoted and tenure, I said, I'm a singer. So I always dream to play the piano and accompany myself for singing. And in that one year... I think I studied for close to two years. It became such a stressful experience. <laughs> and I realized as much as a coordinated dancer, I just don't have a coordination as a pianist. So I don't. Nowadays, we have a piano at home. And it was very humiliating, quote unquote, when Eric just sat on the a piano. So he started to learn piano also, right, shortly after me. I'm thinking, oh, Derek, this is not fair. You can't just sit in front of the piano and start to play beautiful music. I'm being here two years in a row. I'm still struggling with how to put my finger on where. <laughs> so I quit. And I realized I, my instrument is my voice. So I'm singing. I'm continuing to sing. So sadly, I, I don't play music because it creates stress rather than <laughs> comfort. So what lessons have you learned from being a mother? 
Oh, many lessons, many lessons. Actually, before I become the mother, I made a decision about the type of mother I wanted to be. And I told myself I will never be a typical Chinese mother. You know, you know the expression helicopter moms, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> many agents, I made a decision. I'm never going to be a helicopter mom. I'm never going to give my, my child the negative reinforcement to start with, but I'm also going to be very practical. <clears throat> so the lessons I've learned, I've never said, Derek, you can't do this. You're, you're not smart, but you can work harder. I'm very objective. I know I'm his mom. I'm never going to say you're the best. One of the lessons I came to the U.S. have learned, U.S. moms always see the best side of their children. Of course, we all do, right? You are the best. As long as you set your mind, you can accomplish everything. That's not true, <laughs> right? That's not true. I've never, I told Derek, you know what? You have natural talent in this way. Do your best, pursue your dream, pursue your passion, right? But there are certain areas you may want to do may not be the best for you. So I'm very practical that way. But I've always encouraged him. I never say no to anything he wanted to try. I think as a mom, I can probably say I'm a very positive influence on Derek. He wanted to do violin. I said, okay. Early on, you know, I took Derek to Chinese school on campus. And Chinese love to compare, right? Mom said, oh, my daughter is doing dance, is doing piano, Olympic math. What's Derek doing? I said, nothing. I'm letting Derek choose. He said, oh, you can't do that because Derek's too young. He doesn't know. You have to force him. I said, no, I don't believe forcing the child, right? I believe the interest will come, will emerge. <clears throat> so Derek was never in any you know, Olympics math. I'm thinking, why? <clears throat> why does he need to be in math? He doesn't really like math, right? But against the stereotype, even Derek was very emotional. Mom, when I get a good score in math, people say, of course you should because you're Chinese. But he said, they don't understand how much struggle <laughs> I'm struggling with math, right? So I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, you don't have to be everything, right? doing everything well. But if you love music, give you 100%, and I will support you. And so I'm never saying no to any of his instruments. Early on, I offered piano. He said, no, I don't want a piano. I want anything. If I ever do instrument, I'm going to do a string instrument. I said, okay. So he didn't start the violin until he was in school, right? Like 10 years and a half. So <clears throat> Derek always felt he was starting late. But I said, you know what, Derek, you were more mature. You knew what you wanted. Mm -hmm. So as a mother, I've learned a lesson. I think maybe it's also... To some degree, he was like my experiment being a human resource development profession. Right? <laughs> I developed the child in a way that will make him thrive, right? Give him confidence, not always putting him down, right? But also being very realistic. I've always said, Derek, you can be one of the best, but you're never going to be the best, right? Mm -hmm. So I have that realistic mentality, learning from my Chinese culture, all about never good enough, never good enough. And in American culture, I see the opposite. Just you are the best, you are the best. So some of students come to our, even come to the graduate school, have a huge culture shock because when the first time you give them a paper with lots of feedback, they feel you're insulting them, right? <laughs> I had experience, even my student was 35 years old. First time I received my uh, writing feedback, and she looked at me, she said, who do you think you are? I'm a professional writer. I'm thinking, well, you may be a professional writer, but you're still a baby in the academic writing world, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's because American parents always say, good, good, good. I think there's a, there needs to be a balance. I think I'm giving Derek that balanced view about himself. So he doesn't feel discouraged, but he also sees the hope. Well, there are a lot of advantages in being true, telling the truth, right? Whether it's good or bad, because people, your child included, your son included, 
actually believes what you say, right? True, right? right, yeah. It's not put in a particular way to make you feel good or bad. Or, it's true and right. it's believable. That's true. And I think I realized by being a mother how scary <laughs> our own behaviors, right? What, what a scary impact. A lot of times I would tell Derek, okay, I want you to do this and this. I always tell Derek, if you want to pursue something, don't be afraid of failure. That's another thing coming I mean, from my culture. We can't fail, right? You know, because there's so much expectation on you. And the failure is like losing face, right? In America, you learn by making mistakes. In China, you don't. You don't want to make mistakes. I think that's another thing I'm teaching there. If you make a lot of mistakes, I'm so proud of you. That means you've tried many different things. If somebody never made a mistake, never experienced failure, that means the person probably never tried much, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very different mentality. I teaching Derek, but I always tell him, son, throw yourself out there in a battlefield. <laughs> and I remember how many times Derek said, mom, do you know you always taught me to throw yourself out there in a battlefield? Why don't you throw yourself out there? <laughs> there are things, for example, he said, mom, you'll be great on this program. I said, I don't think so. I'm too old. Mom, throw yourself in the field. <laughs> so I realized, wow, he's watching my behavior, right? So am I <laughs> walk my talks. I, I have to be very careful. A lot of times what I teach him, I knew I, I'm not even doing that. So am I hypocritical <laughs> as a mother? What does Ja do in, in her free time? Do you have any hobbies? Yeah. Music is everything to me, right? I, I love dancing. So before pandemic, we used to dance as often as we could. We went Western dancing with one of our uh, couple friends. She, he was very serious. He goes almost every week. He will drive two or three hours to just go to a dance hall. So we used to tag along and I love singing, walking. I love walking. I love to be outdoors, right? Not just engaging a lot of physical activity, but I love to be walking, the freedom just to look around. And I love writing my diary. <laughs> So that's very comforting for me. So I've started that habit when I was in elementary, never stopped. So where are your diaries? Are they in China or with you? The ones I wrote in China, my mom saved them perfectly. And my dad always encouraged me, hey, John, you need to publish. There's so many nice stories. But here I probably have 50, 60 diaries here. with me. So mm. you need to write. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with those? That would be something I do later on in my life, right? You know, when you retire, then you can do a qualitative analysis of your diaries. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I still have energy or passion for doing research, I would definitely do that. <laughs> but I think some occasionally I was reading my diary, I was surprised. I'm thinking, wow, I didn't remember this story, right? So I love to capture significant moments in life and just future I can read and reflect. Yeah, that would be a very fun experience. Do you have artwork in your home? Uh, not from anybody famous. I do have a lot of artworks in our home. <laughs> but, you know, it was if you come to our home, you will find my favorite artwork. It doesn't matter who. It's it's Lotus. You know, if you come to my home office right now, I'm looking at there's three pictures of uh, different stages of Lotus blossom. I have a huge uh, vase of with the lotus flowers and fake one and small one in my office. All my students and friends know lotus is my number one. Thing. Mm. So I have lotus every room in a bedroom, in every room. But a lot of things are Chinese. Surprisingly, when I left home, I realized how much I need to have the Chinese reminders. Right? A lot of artworks are very Chinese looking in our 
Chinese flowers and the Chinese painting, Chinese flavor. Yeah, very interesting. So it's a little bit of a cliche, but I'm going to ask anyway. If you okay. had to leave your home or your office unexpectedly and you could only take a couple of objects okay. with you, what would those objects be? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a great question I've never thought about. I think, okay, leave my home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm going to definitely take my dump drives. <laughs> <laughs> the dump drives have all the important things I have and the photos. And the photos, I have a lot of actually not just electronic photos, right? But I also have photo albums. In, in, even in our wall, we have a lot of photos on the uh, counters, a lot of photos. Those are things that matter most to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, my passport needs to go with me <laughs> for my identity. <laughs> but I think of memories, I, I want to take those memories with me. So what are your biggest fears, Ja? Time, uh, running out of time for doing things, right? I think... When I met my husband, my husband's older than me. When I met him, uh, within the first week, we were joking. I said, what can you offer me? And he was retired from, right? He was retired, so he has time. He, would, he was a stay-at-home dad for my son for 15 years. I was very grateful. And he said, I can give you time. And I remember I laughed and stared at him. I'm thinking, of course, you're retired. Of course, you have time. But it took me over 10 years to realize, oh, my gosh, That's the best gift I can ask for anybody. Anybody can give me, right? Mm-hmm. And I always imagine if I still have a, my husband, I didn't get divorced. We're both working. He's now in China. He had his own business. He used to tell me, I want to spend six months in China, six months in the U.S. And I remember my daddy would say, oh, that's not going to work. I don't care how much you're in love. Just not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. And I realized we put things on hold all the time. I'm going to do this until I retire. I'm going to do this when I have more time. You never have time, right? You have to cultivate time. And I'm also very guilty of, because we're so used to be busy all the time. When when I do have time on Saturday, if I'm sitting there, my husband says, can you sit down and listen to music with me? I say, okay, I'll be sitting there five, 10 minutes later, I get agitated. I say, you know what? (laughs) I need to get up. I need to go to the kitchen. I need to do laundry. I need to do this and this and this. He said, can you just sit down and enjoy? I say, I can't. I've done that for 10 minutes already, right? So these this constant needs to move around to keep yourself busy. And I realized how much I've missed in life just by giving, even giving myself time, right? Is that okay? I just sit down doing nothing, just drinking a cup of tea, watching birds outside. I feel guilty, right? For a lot of time. So I'm learning to share time and also realizing my time with my son. It's very different. Now he's not home, right? So he doesn't come home. And like Thanksgiving, he said, Mom, I want to come home. I said, you know what? You're coming back in Christmas time. You don't have to come home. Why don't you stay in Boston with your friends? We didn't want him to travel twice, getting exposed to COVID, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, Mom, I'd like to. Then I continue. He said, we know, but you can stay there. Mom, I really want to. Mm-hmm. And I say, that's it. I'm not going to tell my child who still wants to come home. Maybe one day I'm going to beg him to come home, right? Mm-hmm. So I think at time, as I get older, I realize I don't want to be <laughs> negative or pessimistic, but I do realize how time goes by fast. Like where in November, I'm thinking, where did this year go? And besides working, I feel like I've been so consumed by work. And where's my life, right? And where's the fun part of Ja, right? I feel like I'm becoming boring, boring, professional, uh, doing more and more at work, but forget about 
the fun part of life, right? Isn't that the ultimate goal of living a life? Is you can come. My husband told me when I met him, the goal of living a life, going to work, is you can come home at the end of the day, spending time with your loved ones, right? And I even for loved ones, we don't have time anymore. I'm waiting for a retirement. Maybe that's too late. So I'm I'm conscious of time and consciously pushing myself to make choices wisely, right? And it's okay if I don't get my work done today. It's still okay. Don't beat myself to death. Are you very mindful of time? Are you afraid of death? No, <laughs> maybe I'm not. I'm not. I'm not close to death yet. I'm not. I. I think if, I believe if if it's my time. I think I've always taken that attitude. If it meant to be, it will be. Even for many risks I've taken in life, like going back to China, changing my、uh, status. Right. I've always taken the attitude. If I meant to be. Coming back to U.S., I will get a visa. If I'm not meant to be, I will stay where they are. I think there's so many things you can control. That is one of them. But I can definitely. I don't like to die young. <laughs>、mm-hmm. I don't want to die prematurely. So I do exercise. I do take care of my diet, right? So I can live a healthier life.、Mm-hmm. But if I've done everything I can, so just let the God take care of the rest, right? And I can't worry about that. I think. By worrying, it certainly doesn't help me to live longer, right? <laughs>、mm-hmm. Is there something you haven't achieved yet in life that you'd like to achieve? Oh, absolutely! Many, many things I want to achieve.、Uh, for example, I'll give you an example, but it's career related. I grew up always wanted to work for a TV station, right? To have to be a show host in China, it's a big profession. I grew up every day. I was in front of mirror using the flashlight. Practicing being a host, right? And I got my first job in the TV station when I graduated, but I gave it to my boyfriend then, and he didn't take it. And by the time he never told me, it was too late. So I always wonder how my life would be different if I'm working in an entertainment business, right? Hosting the show、um, the way I've always imagined. Yeah, that's one dream. And I wanted to. I love babies. I love children. When I went to Africa, my First dream, my big serious dream was I wanted to work for UNICEF. Right,、mm-hmm. I want to work with children. I was telling my husband maybe when I retire I should volunteer in the daycare centers. So there are a lot of things I wanted to do, but I haven't had a chance to explore.、Uh, but am I okay? I that comes back to time, right? I think it, delusionally you tell yourself you have time to do that. You may never, but if I do have time, I want experience. Yes, there are many many other stuff I wanted to do. I want to travel. I love traveling. There's so many countries I haven't traveled. Right to, I wanted to live in Italy、uh, for a little bit because I'm addicted to under Tuscan sun. <laughs> We just watched that over the weekend. I don't know for how many times. Each time I watch, I'm thinking it's like brand new. I need to. I need to go to Italy. I need to live the life I never experienced. Right. So there's some lot of things that I wanted to do. I've become too practical. Right, in this stage of my life, and just can't imagine leaving everything behind to pursue some of the things.、Mm-hmm. And I'm working on that. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered? Oh, great question! Right, an honest person. I think I want people to remember me as such an authentic person, full of passion about life, and with lots of love. If I have to take away three things, I think I've always seen myself as a very loving person. I want to share that love. I have so much passion. I want to pursue my passion, right? Then I want people to remember me as a 
so, such a real honest person. I think those are very important to me. In the next segment, I'm going to ask you some very short random questions and you only need very short answers. Cat or dog? Dog. Tea or coffee? Tea. Your drink of choice at a bar? Margarita on the rocks. Beach or mountain? Mountain. Uganda or Nigeria? Uganda. Michael Bubbly or John Coltrane? Michael Bubbly. What's your lucky number? Seven. Running a 5K or yoga? Yoga. Are you a vegetarian? No. Do you have to hire a professional to paint walls in your house? No. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I did it before. That's why I say I can do it. What question did you wish I had asked you, but I didn't? No, I can't think of anything. Maybe I wish you can say, are you happy where you are in life? Are you happy where you are in life? I am. From one to 10? Uh, I would say eight to nine. That's an authentic answer. <laughs> That's very authentic answer because I feel loved. I think in, I care so much about love, right? I feel I have a perfect loving husband. My parents finally come to the stage. They no longer gave me negative reinforcement. They see my value. I have a good relationship with my sister. It hasn't always been that way. I have a son who loves me and I have a job I love, right? I just need to learn to balance my, uh, my energy, how much I spend on job. But I think I have everything I wanted to have and I'm very content in my life stage. I just need more time for my husband and for me <laughs> that I will be super happy. <laughs> Thanks for agreeing to participate in its personal podcast series draw i hope it was as much fun for you as it was for me absolutely it was great fun thank you for having me support for this show comes from western carolina university a campus of the university of north carolina system with the technical assistance of kelly menace